Today we're going to be diving into some data. We've got both BDSA and Apex Trading giving us some retail and wholesale data on some uh, market overview, some trends, pricing analysis, all of that coming up. Welcome back to The Talking Hedge. I'm Josh Kincaid, Capital Markets Analyst and host of your Cannabis Business Podcast. Today, we've got a pretty good podcast. We've got two guests with us, the CEO and founder of Apex Trading, John Manlove, and the Senior Vice President of Commercial Development for BDSA, Jessica Lucas. Thank you both for being with us on The Talking Hedge. Thank you. Appreciate it. Uh, so let's dive into some data, talk about a little bit about, um, I guess we'll start with retail with Jessica and look at some uh, maybe behavioral trends, pricing developments, um, some drivers behind all of that. Um, what do you got for us, Jessica? I'm excited to yeah, see. Yeah, sure. Um, given that we are sizing the market on an ongoing basis and predicting out where the markets will be um, out to 2026 at this point in time by state, by category, um, one thought I had is let's just jump in and talk about total market size. So right now we are sizing um, the U.S. legal cannabis market to be about $25 billion in 2021. Um, and I think today we're going to spend a lot of time talking about flowers specifically. Um, and we're tracking about 44% of that $25 billion coming from flower, specifically, again, in legal sales. So through either medical or adult use dispensaries. Um, so we've been tracking, obviously, flower as, hate to call this, but as king for some time within cannabis, going back to the early days of legalization. Um, it's interesting, and I'm sure John can chime in here, too. Um, there's a lot of talk and press and play about edibles um, being new, different form factors, innovation and technology, you name it. But we constantly pull back and remind people that inhalables and flour continue to be king in terms of purchasing in the retail locations. And so um, there's a lot of people out there that say, you know, flour is dying. But the truth behind that is, um, and we'll get into it, um, some of the decline in sales is due to pricing, not actually due to quantities purchased. Um, so really important to call that out. So again, looking at a total legal U.S. market in 2021 at about $25 billion, with about 45% of that coming from flower sales. I love your job. Oh, go ahead. I was going to say price and convenience, I was going to say, are, are the other factors, right, of, of, of maybe why that is. Um, that, or that's at least why people go out and buy stuff. But I would imagine that a lot of the decrease in market share from flower, you know, as we always see in emerging markets being really high and then dropping down in California as low as 40% is because of the competition from other product categories, I would imagine edibles being one of those that saw a huge influx in popularity in probably multiple parts. One, the, the lack of wanting to combust during COVID and, and being fearful of that, as well as staying from home and wanting something to last all day long. Of course, I'm having to infer on the data. I don't know why I didn't take a million part survey and find out, but I'm assuming, and I'm wondering if you guys have an opinion or if you're able to infer on the data, why those changes came about. Yeah. I mean, we've seen edibles and I'll speak at a aggregate legal market level. We've seen edibles stay and hover at about 15% of legal dollar sales across markets. And so that's been pretty stable over time. Um, obviously that looks different if you view market share based on units purchased or packages purchased versus dollar sales, if that makes sense. So we have seen that edibles line kind of hover there. Um, I think you brought up a few interesting points. So because of COVID, um, or during COVID times, let's not, to your point, infer that it's because of COVID. But during COVID times, we did see an increase in the percent of adults consuming cannabis in core markets like California. So the absolute percent of adults consuming cannabis over, let's go back to since March 2020, has increased. Interestingly, so we have a net increase in the addressable market of people consuming cannabis. Um, that is both tracking um, any consumer, so they don't have to be legal consumers or legal purchasers. Um, but we are also seeing that the frequency of consumption of both inhalables and edibles has increased in that time as well. So now you have this interesting dynamic of net increase in the percent of the population consuming, but those people consuming are now consuming even more frequently. And to your point, 
that is definitely even more significant within edibles. So we're at about 56%, I believe, um, within California of edibles consumers consuming at least daily. And I think some of those numbers are shocking, especially to um, those outside of cannabis. So beverage alcohol companies is when I tell them, hey, we're at about 40% of adults consuming cannabis. Their first question is, oh, well, those people aren't consuming very frequently. And then you narrow that down and you say, actually, 67% of inhalable consumers in fully legal states are consuming at least daily. Um, and those are shocking numbers um, to companies and people outside of this industry who don't understand actually the consumption dynamics and kind of the habitual routine nature of what this industry is for many consumers. And, that's, and I think another thing to add to that as well is the evolution of the flower market, right? Flower is still being produced, right? At the quantity, it might just not be making it direct to retail as much, which means that it's going direct to extraction for more higher grade, full flower extracted products becoming much more popular. The live resins, the you know, you know, higher quality type type extracts as that part of the market evolves as well. So some of the things that we've really seen in these downturns in the market is a lot of outdoor and greenhouse cultivation product going direct to extraction, even whole flower extraction, whether that's live resin or fresh frozen or just a normal BHO extraction, um, rather than that going into a bottom shelf or a lower shelf into retail where there's more of a flood. So I think that the flower is still there. It's just evolving where it's being sold or transacted through the supply chain. It's more upstream rather than downstream to retail sometimes. So what, what you're telling me is that there's an increase in users, an increase in frequency, an increase in SKUs and products as, as all these new emerging markets kind of get more um, SKUs behind them. And yet, I think what we're going to see, if I'm, you know, I don't want to get in front of you here, Jessica, but I think we might start to see a decrease in price. That seems like a bit of um, a dichotomy there between increase in users, decrease in price. I've seen Transaction for California specifically, the number of transactions are increasing, but the average um, purchase basket is decreasing. So that's telling me that the um, delivery price of $65 is um, decreasing because that's really what it was on average for a while up until May of this year seemed to dip down. What that's telling me is that people are going into the store buying less going more often so there's more transactions but each time they're buying they're buying less drawing that average item price down so that's part of what i'm seeing is that reflected in the data that you have jessica i love that question and actually it is something we can address um but i wasn't prepared to address it oh, so my fault. well let's just no, talk about pricing good. tell me about pricing trends then, just in general yeah, let me um, let me look at something really quick. I love doing analysis on the fly. It's always fun. Um, but I will say, um, I'm going to share my screen if you don't mind. And I think this is where it's like really interesting to look at average retail price. And so um, I, I believe between John and I, I'm going to speak to average retail price at the store. So what consumers paid, so the sell through. All pricing I speak to, um, is predominantly pre-tax, so keep that in mind as well. Um, John, I'll let you handle the expertise on all things wholesale pricing, um, but let me just show you this really quickly. So what I'm filtered to in the BDSA dashboards is California retail sales tracking, year-to-date 2021, um, and looking at specifically edibles pricing. Um, and so what I wanted to show you is generally, and we've seen this over the years, fairly stable pricing within edibles. Um, we also see fairly um, consistent pricing for vape, but let me caveat that with vape by price tiers, um, because you see live resin at very different price tiers than oil or distillate, for example. If we think about the pricing tiers or those subcategories, it is still pretty relatively stable. So again, let's focus just on this blue line. Obviously, there are some shifts, but we're going from, you know, 1770, not surprising, most edibles are 100 milligrams, uh, 10 milligrams per dose um, of THC. So around, you know, 1769, you see it dropping to 1747, but we can largely say this is pretty stable. Mm -hmm. um, again, year-to-date edibles. If I flip this and toggle over to flour, um, don't be alarmed. I mentioned this earlier. The scale of the chart makes it look scarier. 
Um, but there's still a clear trend here. And so that conversation, kind of what you just brought up is what's going on in terms of basket sizes versus price per unit versus unit sales. And I think there's a lot to do here. Again, if we're saying, you know, 40 to 50% of dollar sales are from flour, that means 60 to 70% of unit sales are coming from flour in the dispensary. And you're seeing this decline in price over time. Um, so worth calling out again, the scale looks a little bit scary, but we're talking about a 10 to 15% decline in price per gram at the dispensary for flour in California between January and September of this year. Hmm. Interesting. And so the decrease in flour, is that due to more people consuming? So are they consuming the edibles? Are they consuming the vapes? Um, and that's what's taking away flour market share? Yeah, there's a there's cross-format consumption definitely going on. So, um, you know, flour is still the number one preferred format of inhaling amongst inhalable consumers. We see that constantly. But there is more cross-format consumption in terms of, you know, depending on the experience you're seeking, time of day, need, state, occasion, desire for something that's more convenient, um, you do see kind of people move throughout edibles, um, vape back to flower throughout a day or throughout a week. So you definitely are seeing some of that. I think we also have to call out and John, I'm going to look at you to jump in here on this topic. Um, I don't really love talking about what's happening in the illicit market, but we can't ignore it. Um, form factors available in the dispensary for some cases like inhalables or concentrate products are more difficult to get. Um, in the black market compared to flour. And so we have to consider that relationship as well, which is obviously very difficult to track in my world and John's world where we're tracking sales of the legal products, but there is an illicit market dynamic in terms of what's available in the illicit market at what price point um, versus what is available to consumers in the dispensary that might provide an added benefit, frankly, that you can't get in the black market. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I definitely think that's true. I mean, specifically in states that have <clears throat> more a long, longer standing illicit markets of production in Oregon and Northern California, right? Some of these markets, I think Oregon's been really well publicized lately with what's going on in some of the Southern counties around people growing or cultivating cannabis under the guise of hemp, right? And I think we're going to see this more and more with the lack hemp regulations um, and that, you know, it's really easy for organized crime to come in and go and say, we're cultivating hemp, but at the end of the day, they're, they're cultivating illicit market cannabis, right? And this is happening in, in, you know, really large amounts, especially in Southern Oregon, which is really hitting the press right now. And they've gone to the state to request funds to actually really combat this, which obviously, and, you know, the, when you're not having to pay the taxes and all the overheads that a business or producer has to have, and you can bring that great straight to market, then it has an immediate impact. But let's not forget that that's not just within that state, right? This product's making it into medical states. It's making it into other recreational markets and it has an impact on that, right? So I think for the consumer, right? And we hear this sometimes, especially in California, right? Is, you know, a $65 rate is fairly, is really expensive, you know, when it comes down to it for a top shelf product. And, and if that, that consumer, especially that flower consumer, they probably used to consume most likely illicit market flour for a long period of time before, before, you know, adult use or medical was passed in their state. They have those connections probably still existing from their, their dealers, right? So it's pretty easy for that person to go back and say, well, if I can't afford this, and I can get the same quality product here. Yeah, it might not have all the testing or some of the transparency that a lot of us would be concerned about. But if they're not, then I think they'll just shift back to that, right? So I think part of it is, you know, the market you know, and the taxation and the way that retailers are pricing, it has to also take into account what's happening in the listed part of the market to remain competitive, to bring those people in and, and retain those clients. And I think for us, you know, as we look towards wholesale, you know, the fluctuations that, that BDSA and Jess have, have you know, mentioned here, you know, they do directly correlate to some of what's happening, of course, at wholesale, right? Now, um, pricing itself, I often don't think that when the price of indoor flour falls down three, $400 a pound, I don't think the consumer as often gets to get to see that savings at the shelf uh, from the retailer. You know, it's mostly the grower who, who gets to bear the brunt of that, that downward price, price pressure. Um, but I also think, you know, what happens is in those seasonality times is there's just more of a lower, you know, a lower price product, a greenhouse or an outdoor product. And as a consumer, you're maybe just buying a little less top shelf because you're finding 
a somewhat close to similar kind of quality potency thing, other drivers or things that drive that consumption rather than just the grow environment itself, right? So I think for us, as we look towards wholesale, you know, there's always been seasonal fluctuations, especially in the you know, Western coast, you know, West coast markets that have great outdoor growing conditions, but there's a lot of other factors that impact pricing um, that we're seeing in other, you know, other states like a Michigan or Massachusetts. And a lot of that just has to come down to the age of the state and the market. Um, and ultimately people scaling up production in, in lieu of, you know, um, you know, limited licenses, essentially. You guys have an opinion on, on what D8 is taking away from the market, if anything at all, because you mentioned that it's increasing accessibility or you mentioned um, the, the, the decrease in price. Um, and immediately I'm thinking of, of wholesale CBD being $18,000 a few years ago, right? And now it's like a couple hundred bucks for a kilo. Same thing with the other rare cannabinoids, CBG or CBN might be 18 grand now for a, a kilo, and that's going to plummet down to reality pretty soon. So um, wholesale prices will, will reflect that eventually. The supply and demand is going to shift with, with safety and concerns, the vape gate, COVID, um, all of that was an issue. And then now we have this um, supply, I guess, is overproduction of, of hemp. And so now there's this opportunity to squeeze out some margins in the form of, of Delta eight. Um, mm -hmm. Are we seeing, are you able to, to see from any of the data, how Delta eight is impacting some sales? You know, that's, that's interesting. I mean, just, you might have some stuff. I mean, I think for a lot of our states, you know, like in Oregon, they banned Delta 8, right? So like you can't consume that product. They've really tried to combat it there to keep the cannabis market healthy, right? And fight for those businesses. I think what you'll probably see is in a state like, you know, Colorado, for instance, and Jess, I'm inferring here, but, you know, I would think that in a state like Colorado, where you've started to have some medical markets now, and then you have these restricted uh, markets, but they have Delta 8, right? And we're seeing, you know, I was in North Carolina recently, same type of thing, right? Where these consumers, they're not traveling to Colorado to consume cannabis anymore, right? And they're saying, "Oh, I can get some form of high uh, through the the these rare, you know, these minor cannabinoids, right? That have some form of you know uh, THC." So I think we are. I think there is a bit of a shift there, right? And I think it has directly impacted specifically the Colorado market as of late. Is you know, there's a lot of factors, right? There's always the seasonal fluctuation with outdoor and larger greenhouse harvest. At this point in time, you're always going to see a drop in pricing, and historically, we've always seen it this time of year. And consumption tends to slow down a little bit for some reason at this time of year as well. But I think the big impact is people aren't traveling as much to these cannabis states to, to consume, right? It's closer to their back door or they have these CBD stores that they can go to that are offering, you know, a very a different type of form of cannabinoid to consume that all, that mimics that type of high. Um, so, you know, maybe Jess, I don't know if you, if you guys have done any research on yeah. that or something. Like I mean, we have a, so we have a partnership with IRI, so they are tracking sales of products in kind of mainstream retail. Let's be honest, Delta 8's not showing up in mainstream retail, but some C stores, right, are carrying this. So we're seeing that more to your point, John, like outside of the legal markets where it's not as available. Um, you know, we've heard a lot about the availability of, you know, some of these cannabinoids um, in states like Pennsylvania, um, kind of causing some havoc there. Um, I think one thing you said that's really interesting in terms of kind of borders and traveling, I think traveling is an interesting thing for us to talk about right now, just since COVID travel has declined overall. Um, and what does that mean, especially in legal cannabis markets that are heavy tourist markets, let's say like Las Vegas, mm -hmm. um, what are those trends? So I used to always love using our Nevada data as an example of how much tourism can shift category share where you saw pre-rolls being a much larger percent of sales than you do in other markets or disposable vapes for that matter. And now all of a sudden, um, kind of in the midst of COVID when travel was really restricted, um, you definitely saw Nevada's category share start shifting and looking more like a Colorado and Oregon. Um, and as markets open back up, you see those things shift again. Um, so that's one point I would just call it just in terms of COVID and impact and travel. It's hard to directly correlate what's happening. Again, is it COVID or is it more availability in markets where cannabis wasn't um, there before? We did a webinar a couple of weeks ago um, 
specifically on the Missouri market. So we just rolled out data tracking the Missouri market and we had a panelist, a few panelists from both brands, um, manufacturers, as well as retailers in the market. And it was fascinating. And I'm sure John, you see this as well to hear the struggles they're having in a medical market when they border Oklahoma in the Southern part of the state, hmm. you know, or it's like you break Missouri down into regions and you have certain areas like, why would you get a medical card when you can cross over to the border and get it in Oklahoma? Um, it's easier, it's cheaper. Or what about the northern part of Missouri, um, northeast, where you're bordering Illinois, a fully adult use legal market, so you don't have to get a medical card. And so I think kind of the, the mention, John, of borders and what does that mean for markets, I think is something that we are trying to keep an eye on as closely as possible. Because what happens state by state when... I'm going to say 60 to 70% of dispensary sales um, in Illinois that border Indiana or in Michigan that border Indiana are coming from Indiana residents. What happens as Indiana shifts over? Yeah. That, that example, I'm from Indiana, so I like, like to call it out as much as possible. Uh, but it does create this interesting dynamic of where do you go? And really quickly, let me share my screen. It's, I just pulled up a slide really quickly. Um, this was part of the Missouri webinar. Um, but just a really quick view of average retail price. This is where borders start becoming fascinating as we think about being able to cross and get product for different price points. And this is the average retail price of one gram of flour. Um, so all gram or all purchases equivalent to a single gram. Um, and the Illinois and Michigan numbers here are just through the lens of the medical market, but still fascinating to think about as more and more markets emerge and as borders open up, um, there's really going to be complex pricing scenarios of traveling to get it somewhere else that's cheaper, even if you have to drive two hours. Um, and I think that's all like part of this conversation. I think, John, you wanted to talk about kind of opening of interstate commerce, but still it's like it's a domino effect right now of these new markets opening. And, and do people register to get a medical card in their state or do they continue right. to travel to an adult use state to get a better price point? And the impacts of, of over-licensing too, because to your point, Jessica, Oklahoma has 7,500 licenses. So you could just hop over there. They're everywhere um, and not maybe as impacted as a place like Las Vegas or Ontario with the borders being closed. Toronto probably saw a massive decrease in the amount of tourism impacting their sales, nonetheless creating a massive arbitrage opportunity with a 50% increase from Michigan to um uh, what was the other one that you showed? The high and low, um, Michigan. Missouri. Yeah, yeah. Set from seven dollars to fourteen dollars. That's that's quite the, the arbitrage <laughs> yep. play there. Um, yeah. What's yep. your take on on, uh, on wholesale cross borders? Because if we see Peru or Colombia coming at fifteen cents per gram with landing costs, it's game over. Yeah, you know, we see it even, you know, when you think about the uh, these micro state markets, right? In Oregon and Colorado, you know, other ones. You know, like in Oregon, you know, you got the, the border right there with Idaho, right? Ontario, there's four or five stores there, right? But they command a huge portion of sales in the state, right? And I think what we find in the wholesale side, especially for producers, is, you know, a lot harder when you're competing in the metropolitan area where there's a lot of stores and a lot of production, everyone's fighting for it, right? But if you can get in early as a producer in some of these other, these other kind of border states, the same as like Grand Junction in Colorado, right? There's a few stores there. If you're the first store hitting from Utah, you know you're going to have busy weekends and you're going to be able to charge a premium because people are driving there for their cannabis, right? And they're coming there to get it and go back home. Same thing's happening in Oregon with the border of Idaho, right? You've got these, you know, fairly, you know, largely conservative states, but they love their cannabis too, right? Let's not, let's, let's not lie to ourselves, right? So I think what we find is that you know, on the wholesale level, if you're able as a producer to go and solidify a sell through in some of these border states, your pricing will not be as directly impacted as you are maybe competing in a metropolitan area, right? And we see this with some of the zip code pricing and things that we have here. When you look at pricing into zip codes, any more rural areas on the coasts, on the borders that aren't in big metropolitan areas, they do have, they, they do pay higher prices, right? First, it's harder to get to them. It's more costly in the same sense. So the cost to get there is more. So you have to play that in your price, but also, you know, they, they have a lot of demand. They have a lot more traffic, right? So they are looking for product. They buy bigger bulk. They're willing to pay a higher price. So I think those are all very important things to think about. And, and so, yeah, as you say, if an Idaho was to go 
legal, probably the last state that probably <laughs> that will possibly outside of the deep south, mm-hmm. you know, it will have a direct impact on those stores in Ontario, right? When Utah rolls out a medical market, it probably have a direct impact on those stores on the border. And I think that's what's important to realize too, is that there's a lot of dynamics, not only in state in general, but in specific zip codes, specific regions that have a direct impact, right? I was talking to a client in, in Massachusetts, a large, a large producer there. And, you know, he really was, you know, struggling with some of the recent pricing. And I said, well, what, you know, you, you guys were at, you know, 4,000 a pound, you know, of course, broken down into eights and various things, but you're commanding a high price. Joints were, you know, $8 a gram joint wholesale, which is, you know, what anyone in Oregon or Colorado or any California would dream to be able to charge, right? That's, that's the old, that those are the old school prices, right? Before market. And, and he said, well, one producer, one producer in Massachusetts came online and flooded the pro- flooded the market at scale, right? Their first time, they have a hundred some thousand square feet to grow. They just flooded the market and they directly impacted every single other person's price and market, right? Mm-hmm. And we've seen that now. You don't see it as much in the very large states, but I know in Colorado, there's a, a company that did that several years ago, right? Came in, started selling $500 indoor pounds, sunk the market, right? So I think it also can be, a lot of it's the scale, of the state, like you mentioned, Josh, about, you know, license limits and canopy limits and things. But when you open it up, right, and when when cultivators get to scale after two to three years in, you see an immediate impact to drop of pricing, right? It's just now happening in Michigan. Massachusetts is starting to experience it, right? Um, so they're not insulated from the competition in, within wholesale as well, right? It does have a dramatic impact. So we kind of look at it as like, you know, the seasonality, right? What time of the year is it? Is there more outdoor greenhouse product on market? Obviously, it's going to drive some prices down because there's oversupply. The age of the market, right? So as a market typically hits that two to three year after adult use, you start to see cultivation scale up or more cultivators come online, more product on market, right? Which is going to, you know, obviously impact price. Um, And then I think regulations as well, right? An interesting thing, I have to look back, but like, you know, when Colorado passed microbial testing on flour, right? And this was 2016, I think, right? It, we saw prices go from like 12 to 18, like overnight, because cultivators weren't passing microbial tests, right? Mm. Right away. So, you know, regulations from the state has a dramatic impact as well, specifically around new testing, right? Pesticides was another thing in Colorado that came out a little later after microbials, because we started to see all these recalls, right? There was the secret shoppers going around and finding anything they could uh, to recall from the Department of Ag had a direct impact on the cultivation aspect, right? And their sell-through. So there's a lot that kind of goes into the dynamics of a market. Some of it is, are we bordered by non-cannabis states? Great. You know, then we're probably pretty healthy on that side. Are we starting to see more licenses come on as the state controlling canopy limits, right? Are they kind of making sure that we have a really healthy market here of supply and demand? And then ultimately, what kind of new regulations are going to come down the road? And how does that impact the producer themselves, right? Yeah, you guys remember when Oregon uh, took all solvents off the market in like 2015, and they were worried about the Florida motel explosions and stuff that was happening across the, the country. Um, you, you mentioned scale um, scaling, and I, I think ultimately it's going to probably be about the cultivar. You know, when we see macro beer, for example, and then micros that I think the micros are producing what people, uh, you know, they're looking for, for that niche, whatever that is, maybe it's the terpenes, the funk, the flavor, what have you, but post harvest season, or, or maybe some, some late harvesters right now, um, are going to be driving the price down, like you said, but as we see in the news, everything is about in, uh, transitory inflation, like this temporary spike in price, and then it's just going to go away on its own somehow. Um, but I've seen like beef jerky go up in price over the last few years. It was like $10 a pound, and now it's $10 for like dust. So how is it that an eighth of, of cannabis has been $40 for like 100 years, or I mean, like forever? Are we going to see inflation? Uh, this two-part question, I guess, as I'm just kind of rambling here. How does harvest season naturally affect prices? And will we see inflation hit the cannabis market? Yeah, I, I'm happy to touch on some of the wholesale stuff too, around kind of the the qual, you know, the 
quality aspect. I hate to say quality because we're really talking to quality around potency and grow environment. It's not necessarily quantified into terpenes and quality grading and everything we would conventionally see from other, you know, ag products or other kind of goods. But yeah, happy to go into to some of that. And I think, you know, and I do think the Oregon market is is really good indicator of this idea of a really large outdoor product, right? Market. It has these fluctuations. But it's really interesting to kind of look at the data, what's happened over the last year to talk about, you know, how specific, specific products or quality can maybe be insulated, um, you know, depending on what you're producing, right? And, and this is a really, you know, and I'll, I'll share my screen here. So, you know, as we look at the Oregon data, right, this is, you know, a year, over a year of wholesale product pricing on flour, right? Ranging from a high of 1900 a pound to the current 1500 a pound now, right? This is across all grow environments, right? And all potencies. But if we come in and we simply just take indoor out, right? And this hybrid indoor, which is kind of there, here's your drop, right? Mm -hmm. So you know right now, greenhouse and outdoor is not as insulated from the dynamics of production because you're seeing here is the high this year and all it's done is start to go down as, as harvest occurs, right? Over the over early season into late season into fall, right? And now we're down to five, you know, 533 a pound where, you know, a little over a year ago, you know, it's, it was, it was 1200 a pound, right? Massive drop. Well, if we take greenhouse and that out and we just say indoor, here's your indoor right now it is dropped down to 1600 a pound, but from 19, right? So not near a 300 pound, you know, 300 a pound drop, right? Not near, you know, the curve, if we were to just average this out would be almost flat, mm -hmm. right? So this indoor product, right? It's much more insulated from the fluctuations of pricing. I think because mostly the obviously quality is one, right? So, you know, a more consistently grown product, et cetera. It may be easier to build that brand with the consumer, which maybe Jess can talk about as well. But this is the interesting thing, right? So as an outdoor, a greenhouse grower in this kind of mid to lower shelf kind of category, right? You are much more commoditized. You are much more dependent or, you know, your business is much more impacted by seasonal fluctuations and overproduction, right? Easier to produce greenhouse and outdoor product, less cost, a lot less cost than to scale up an indoor grow, right? So you can come into market quicker. You can put plants in the ground. You can get it harvested faster, right? Assuming you're doing your due diligence on your facility or your land. But on the other side, right, we look at the, the, the indoor and it's somewhat more insulated, right? It's a little bit harder for those businesses to scale up and produce, you know, maybe have that canopy size, but also, you know, it's some of that comes back to some of the quality, right? And the quality aspects of the product, you know? And I think even if we were to, been done this yet, but if we were to take out lower potency here, right? You're probably going to see an even flatter curve. So I think it's just interesting when we look at that to understand that like, you know, an indoor grower, right? More wet, you have to be much more well-funded, you know, much more costed, you know, of a cost per pound. Um, but at the end of the day, you're slightly more insulated from the fluctuations, the seasonal fluctuations of pricing, obviously compared to a, a greenhouse or, or, a, or an outdoor grower, of course, you know? Mm -hmm. Jessica, what are you seeing in terms of like trends? California tends to be a market leader. Um, I'm curious, like post post pandemic, kind of where we're at, and um, you know anything that you're seeing. Yeah, and I think this ties nicely to some of what John said, and tying all all of this back together. Um, and John chime in here because you might disagree with me. Um, but I think why some other form factors like concentrates or edibles have been able to maintain that kind of average retail price or that price point is because they've been able to innovate in ways that they could charge more. Um, and I think that might be quote unquote easier within other form factors um, and maybe even more relevant than in others. So we've seen kind of this shift over time into solventless solventless products across the board, um, whether that's dabbable concentrates or vape or even ingestibles at this point, right? Solventless gummies, um, live resin and the evolution there. Um, miners and minor cannabinoids and the fact that, you know, CBD is in an edible product and that edible product is now on some cases 20 to 25% premium priced. Um, we're tracking now, obviously, CBN, CBG, THCA, THCB, all of these other added benefits within these product formats that are allowing people and businesses to command a higher price point. And we're seeing that across form factors, but um, I think fewer examples of that specifically as a marketing tactic within flower. 
Um, I don't know, John, if you have anything to chime well, in I there. I think but... the form factor producers, right? They, they benefit from oversupply, right? Completely. Their cost yeah. of trim goes down. Yep. The cost of plant material for extraction goes down, right? So they're able to make bigger margins, invest yep. more in R&D, invest in new packaging, invest in things to keep them off the shelf and drive the consumer, right? Whether it's direct consumer marketing, whatever that brand's approach is. So, you know, the form factor, they, they absolutely benefit from oversupply and market, right? I mean, there's, that's the music to the ear. To me, it's, we've got extractors essentially paying trim prices for whole flour, right? Now they're producing a very top shelf concentrate that can command a higher price at market, right? So it's amazing for them. They, they really benefit from it all while the grower <laughs> tends to suffer, right? Um, so I do think that's important, right, to understand as well is that you know, their cost of production potentially is, is, you know, their margins go up when they're, they're paying less for the, the, the plant extraction material to produce their products, right? So that's important. But I, I agree, you know, I think that as we look towards, you know, some of the shift, it's been difficult in some of these markets, thinking in Oregon, for instance, or Colorado, a lot of growers, you know, they've always sold bulk pounds, right? It's what the consumers are used to. A lot are trying to pivot into prepackaged aids, right? Or prepackaged quarters. Part of it is to build their own cultivation brand with the consumer who never really knew who they were, right? In some of these markets. So I think it's important for them thinking more as a business and maturing as ways like we have to connect with consumers so we can create that brand and then we can introduce new product lines and start to increase our sell through as a, pro as a producer with these businesses or these consumers. But on the other side, right, is it's really hard for them to do that in these markets, right? For a retailer, they're saying, wait, I'm gonna pay you now, what was 1200, 2400 to have it come in eights, but then I gotta charge my consumer now and I have to get them to choose your package flower that comes in a nice jar over the bulk flower that just gets put, put into, a, uh, into a, you know, a pill bottle and, and sent over to you, right? So that is, I think the evolution that's really hard. Like in a Massachusetts, we're all prepackaged, yep. then it's a little easier, right? In Michigan, a little bit different, right? California, a little different, right? Where we have these brands that have really pushed that, you know, the cookies, the various other ones. So I think that's important to understand, but it is hard for these, the growers themselves to pivot into being able to charge somehow a higher price to the retailer for essentially the same product just coming in a different package, right? And that's where we've seen some of the difficulty there for those businesses as they've tried to evolve. And I think specifically in Colorado, I know it's been a really big challenge for a lot of companies who have wanted to connect with that consumer, have wanted to try and find ways to differentiate on the shelf outside of just the stray name with a 28.6% yeah. potency right on it. Like, how do I connect with that consumer more? But it's also convincing the retailers value in that. And I think that's some of the difficulty for them sometimes. Well, it's interesting. We actually had a conversation yesterday internally about what has shifted in Colorado over the last seven years in terms of deli versus prepack branded to your point. And so seeing this evolution of the market where when we started tracking the market, it was all deli, you know, waited there and put in a bag and go on and now completely shifting. I don't know the exact percentages, but it's definitely at least, I, I believe, 50-50 deli versus uh, prepacked branded. So definitely watching that evolution in Colorado, which is very different to your point than other markets we track where everything's prepacked and branded, pre-weighted and branded, however we want to word it. Um, and we're seeing in Colorado, to your point, John, specifically, retailers are now saying, okay, we're going to do this and we're going to wholesale it to other retailers. Um, so you're seeing retailer brands become store brands like you do in the vertical nature of like in Illinois, where everyone is, you know, it's Green Thumb, it's Cresco, it's Pharmacan, it's Verano, and they're all selling their own products in their own stores, but wholesaling it across to one another. Um, it's interesting. We're, obviously, we're not to that degree of few competitors, but we are starting to see kind of more of that dy dynamic at play, even in Colorado. That's well, and we all know it's easier to sell an eighth right out the door than to have a pay a bud tender to pick it out and weigh it and pick off the stems and stuff, right? So some of it also is the, I think, the retailer becoming more in, like educated, like, wait, <laughs> I could really like cut my costs of labor down by just like simplifying this process of the sale, right? Which I think yeah, also the maturity of the business owner kind of understanding like, okay, what are we wasting labor? Well, on? and the other thing, and I don't think we talked about it live yet, but you know, you look at the reasons people buy what they buy and you talk to flour and hailable consumers specifically and high THC, taste and flavor and price matter. Um, strain they've used before and brand they used before also a top 10 driver. So all of a sudden, if brand of flour matters, um, being able to go back and get that brand 
you know, is worth considering what that means. Um, also, let, let's be, be clear, consumers are telling us strain matters more than brand. Um, but, you know, one thing for, for BDSA selfishly is, uh, I'll tell you, like pre-packed branded flour is much easier to clean in terms of data coming in than the deli that, you know, deli weighted. Um, however, the retailers type that into their point of sale system. So like cleanliness of tracking um, definitely improves in markets where it is all pre-packed. We don't have that luxury in Washington State, one of the most competitive markets that's non-vertically integrated and no stores. You don't have the cookie store, True Leaf store, um, which is good and bad. You walk in and there's 2,000 SKUs, so you're so overwhelmed you walk out because you don't know what to do. So <laughs> there's that. Um, but I, I'm wondering with the advent of delivery, as we're seeing more and more people uh, go to delivery, because when you go to a grocery store and there's like three employees who wants to stand in line for an hour... Um, that's at least my take. That's what's happening here in Seattle. And that's my response is like, okay, I guess we're just ordering everything. Um, <laughs> and so how do you connect with the consumer? How do you have, you know, when you've been relying on bud tenders to give that to you in the advent of Germany recently legalizing or announcing that they're going to legalize, um, you know, when I was working with the world trade center on their e-commerce platform, uh, China came in and wanted 3000 tons of hemp seed that we tried to connect them with uh, Australia and a whole bunch of other folks. And so it seems to be that people are, are navigating through online e-commerce platforms to do that. What are some other drivers that you're seeing that, that people um, are looking for when making purchases in the realm of um, absentee of the retail shop? Seems like delivery is the way to go. Um, do you have any any comments or, or anything uh, to that to that? Effect? Yeah, I mean, I think we have to look at California when you're talking delivery or direct to consumer. Um, you know, paving the way and have been for some time. Where some of the other markets, I live in Colorado, where we're just now entering the world of delivery being legal um, and it kind of starting out. It's interesting. Um, so we get point of sale transactional level data feeds coming in from a big percent of the retailers across all of the states. And so we can see the fulfillment method. Um, so in California specifically, and by fulfillment method, I mean online pre-order and pickup versus delivery versus in-store. Um, and what we've seen over time in California specifically within retail locations that have at least two fulfillment methods um, is you know, this hovering around um, now by month, 20 to 25% of sales coming from e-commerce. So whether that's pre-order, pickup, or delivery. Um, but again, that's amongst stores specifically that have multiple fulfillment methods. That, that doesn't account for your delivery-only licenses and your delivery-only platforms that are separate from that, obviously 100% e-commerce. Um, the interesting thing, though, is at the can, I don't know, what do we call pre-COVID, COVID? Are we post-COVID? Are we still in COVID? I'm not sure. But let's say March 2020 through May um, 2020. So like the height of lockdown, um, we saw those percents jump to about, I believe, 40 to 50% of fulfillment coming from e-commerce within those retailers that have multiple. Um, so you definitely saw a huge spike. However, we've seen that come back and stabilize around that 20%. So it didn't hit 40% and maintain. We definitely saw it shift back. I think that comes to like consumer education, consumer awareness, potentially even the fun for some of shopping for cannabis products is different than your groceries. That feels like a chore. So I think there's a lot of dynamics at play, but I mean, we talk about e-commerce every day. It is not something we can ignore. Um, and to your point, there have been significant changes in behavior, whether that's Grubhub, DoorDash, Instacart, whatever it might be coming from COVID and this becoming the new norm for people. And I can't speak to retail, but I, I think, you know, Joshua, what we're seeing in Washington, the petition to try and allow direct to consumer sales from a, from a, from a cultivation, right? We're starting to see California, certain brands and producers starting to do direct to consumer sales, right? Of course, through a third party license, you know, however they have to work it to legally be able to do it, right? I think it's becoming much, much more of a push 
Because as you see this oversaturation of market and downward price pressure, a grower is like, well, if I can sell $25 eighths, right? Instead of $1,200 pounds, I'm making twice as much money. And now I own the relationship with the consumer and they love my brand and they're coming back to me, right? So I think there is this push to for in certain states, right? And I think Washington being a all packaged flower market, et cetera, that's had some woes with over, you know, over production, again, downward price pressure, et cetera, is the push for some of these brands now is to become a little more power and more well capitalized to petition to the state to say, hey, allow us through whatever the structure is to sell direct consumers and circumvent the retail, right? And or circumvent the delivery service, right? And I do think this is going to be something we'll see occur more and more potentially in some of these markets as they just find ways to support the business owner, right? And finding ways to really help. And I think that's, you know, it's important, whether that's, you know, the brand going through other parties or, you know, conventional geofencing marketing or targeting or whatever to try and really understand the demographic and market directly to them through whatever that agency or that third party service is, is important. Um, but ultimately, you know, I think they're going to try and really push for that direct sales as well if they can. So I'm, I'm curious, uh, as we've kind of, I could go on for another hour, I think, because there's, there's a lot, but we got to wrap this up with the crystal ball prediction. And I'm curious if after pulling all of this together, can we say that we've seen in the existing marketplace, same, sale, same store sales have peaked? Uh, what is your crystal ball prediction? I'm going to throw that out there as a loaded question. Um, I tend to think that until we have beverages or any other products, I think it seems to be that with the economy the way it is, people are pulling back. Inflation has, has um, you know, maybe crept in. Uh, I don't know, but it looks like pricing and people's purchasing uh, is is being pulled back. Um, what What is your take? What is your crystal ball prediction? You want me to go first, John? Um, I'm happy to go. I mean, I, I think for us, as we look at just wholesale flour in general, um, yeah, I think pricing is just going to keep falling here for, for a while. Um, I think they've got a rough, they've had a really rough road this year, especially the latter part of this year. And I think it will continue at least into Q1 to Q2 next year. You know, I think it's going to take a while. Um, you know, I think that a lot of these markets in general are back to kind of where they were a couple of years ago. I think COVID in general uh, saw a lot of increased consumption. They're starting to make good record prices. Everyone scaled up. Everyone started overproduction. Now they're back to where they were, like in Oregon, where they were in 20, 2016, 2015, where we saw massive, massive falling in pricing. I think we're going to see that again. I think certain brands, certain producers are going to be insulated from it, but a market in general, um, over the next six months, uh, you're going to continue to see price decline um, until people get flushed out or until, you know, some, so the market conditions shift and consumption gets back up. I think I saw an article recently. It's like, you know, consumer sales in Colorado dipped for the first time ever this year compared to the year before. Right. I mean, that's a pretty good indicator that, you know, that it's, you know, that that's obviously going to directly correlate back to wholesale. You know? Yeah. I, it's interesting to think about year over year, even in the most mature, I don't know, do we call them legacy markets? I don't know what we call markets anymore, but the most mature, the California, Colorado, Oregon, Washingtons, um, where year over year we have seen growth. Um, growth in terms of the number of dispensaries, growth in terms of number of brands, and growth in terms of the number of consumers. So I think actually, Josh, the question about same store sales is fascinating. And now I'm going to go talk to my analyst because I want to run that specifically. Over, since honestly, 2014, can we run that in Colorado? Because I think it would be a really interesting exercise because you're probably right. It's probably peaked in some markets. Um, despite, again, more form factors, more brands, more consumers, there's also more stores in a lot of cases. And so kind of where does that weigh out? Yeah. Um, generally, I mean, we're continuing to predict growth, even in the most mature markets year over year, um, as far out as 2026. Again, a lot of drivers happening there. Um, in terms of other crystal ball, ball predictions, I mean, you guys called out one of them, um, you know, the dragging of the FDA on hemp is begging the question like did we did we miss the opportunity that could have been a hemp drive cbd market in mainstream retail and that's something that we are kind of debating internally at bdsa um, we're also kind of predicting the shift in um uh john i want you to chime in on this one like can i call it the death 
of the classification of indica sativa and hybrid as we think about genetic compositions, um, cannabinoid profiles, ratios, and terpenes. Um, you know, are we getting closer and closer to the death of indica sativa hybrid? I think that is another prediction we're throwing out there. And with kind of the innovation and the technology, we have and are already seeing more distinct what we call pricing tiers, um, which is kind of exciting to see come out to play across these form factors, um, more similar to what you see within whiskey and beverage alcohol or beer for that matter, um, kind of really kind of benefit driven functional benefit based pricing tiers, um, which start breaking down the market in really different, interesting ways. That's great. Yeah, I agree. I don't think the sativa and hybrid has as much, you know, impact as it may, may most recently do where you'd see sativas really peak in the spring, summer months. And then because now I think we're starting to see, you know, kind of flatness where it's not necessarily impacting that. I think to your point, it really comes back again, the strain name, is it hype? Is it this? Is it old? You know, whatever it is. And the potency. And then obviously those quantifications of quality, the terpene, the aroma, the presentation of the product, et cetera, I think are starting to have much more of an impact on consumer and pricing than before where it was like in that, you know, sativa hybrid shelf, right? People are a little less concerned with that. They're really focused on the impacts of the product. I think it's just the maturation of space, the maturity of the bud tenders, the producers, the education to consumers, the consumer becoming more savvy about what they're looking for. You know, I don't think when I ever, back in the day when I was consuming before, you know, adult use or medical, I didn't know, go to my my flower dealer and be like, yeah, man, I want this certain strain of this thing. This, it's like, hey, what do you have that's good? You know, and I think that's still, you know, sometimes, you know, we forget that a little bit, you know. I tried, I tried recently on Facebook because I wanted the experience of, of buying uh, something illegal, like buying drugs on the internet, just, you know, just to have that experience. And I did, I asked him about, you know, if he had particular cultivars or whatever. And, and yeah, that relationship ended very, very quickly. Um, just like this interview, unfortunately, is, is inter uh, ending a lot quicker than I would like it to. But I want to thank my guests. We're going to have to roll this one up. So CEO and founder of Apex Trading, John Manlove, appreciate you being on the Talking Hedge, as well as Jessica Lucas. She's the Senior VP uh, Commercial Development with VDSA. Appreciate you as well being on the Talking Hedge with us. Thanks, Josh. Thank Happy to talk, talk pricing anytime. Yeah, hopefully next quarter sometime soon, um, but we're gonna have to go. So I'm Josh Kincaid, this is The Talking Hedge. Don't forget to like, share and subscribe or don't, and I'm out. Don't forget to smash that like button on your way out and check out these other videos that we've got. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hey friends, I'm Brandon and I'm Saba and we are your host of the Cannabis Hangout podcast, an educational platform to connect with the cannabis community and share personal stories while breaking the stigma of marijuana. Join us every Sunday at 7 p.m. to gain valuable insight with different perspectives from industry leaders, growers, and medical marijuana patients. This is a place to learn so much from different angles in the cannabis industry. So tune in while, while we break, break it all down. down.